The man was hard to miss. He had positioned himself on the sidewalk in front of the grocery store in a place where everyone would see him both going in and coming out. He didn't have a sign, and he never said a word to those who passed by, but the basket in front of him, which had a handful of coins in it, told them why he was there. Paul was on his way home from work, and he stopped by the grocery store to pick up the few things that his wife had asked him to get. And he noticed with amazement that as he approached the door and walked through, the man didn't move at all, no gesture to acknowledge that someone had passed right in front of him. As Paul walked through the store, grabbing the items off the shelf, completing his pretty short list, he couldn't get the man out of his mind. There was something about his relaxed and even detached demeanor that brought him to mind and to heart. Paul, like many of us, never carries any cash, but it just so happened that that day someone in his office had paid him back for the bottle of wine that he had bought when he and his wife were traveling and used that $20 bill to pay for his groceries. He kept the $3 and change in his hand on purpose. And when he walked back through the automatic sliding doors, he immediately turned to his right and stood right in front of the man. And still, the man didn't respond at all. Paul said, curiously, good evening. But the man didn't even shift his weight or change his breathing. It was as if Paul weren't even there. Growing annoyed, Paul cleared his throat and said, Excuse me, I said good evening. The man slowly raised his head and met Paul's eyes and held them there for a moment before quietly saying, Yes, I heard you. Paul was so taken aback by the man's direct tone that he blurted out, well, I was going to, and then he stopped himself in mid-sentence and collected himself and then said in an accusing tone, what do you do with all the money you collect every day? The man sat there and stared up at Paul, never breaking his gaze, and after a long pause, that made Paul uncomfortable, the man said, politely but firmly, sir, that's none of your business. <laughs> none of my business, Paul snapped back. None of my, what, what are you, are you crazy? I came here to give you some money, but now I'm not going to give you a dime. And before Paul could spin around and head to his car, the man said quietly, well, that's your choice. Paul was furious. He stormed back to his car, shaking his head and wondering out loud to himself, who does that guy think that he is? Doesn't he know that he needs the money I've got? What is he doing? As he approached his car, he looked up and saw another man approaching him, offering his palms extended as if to convey in that universal way the absence of hostility. And before this man 
reached Paul, he had already begun to say, excuse me, sir, excuse me. I'm sorry to bother you, and I don't want to trouble you or startle you here in the parking lot. What is it? Paul said, back still burning inside from what had happened a few minutes earlier. Well, sir, you see, I hate to ask you. I'm a a prideful man, and I don't ask anybody for anything, but I'm in a bit of trouble. My wife over there is pregnant, he said, gesturing to the other side of the parking lot, and Paul looked and sure enough saw a woman standing beside a car, her belly bump visible even from a few aisles away. The man continued, well, my wife and I are on our way to Jackson, Mississippi. She's on her way to see her mama. Her mama's not doing well. She's real sick. And I thought I had enough money to get us all the way, but we blew a tire up the, ro- up the road a piece, and I had to use that money to fix the tire I'm a landscaper, and when it rains like it has recently, I don't get any work, so I don't have any money, and I'm trying to get a place for my wife to stay tonight. Her blood pressure's been real bad, and her doctor wants her on bed rest, but she's got to see her mother, and so, well, we're here, and we're stuck, and and the motel up the road is willing to give us a room for $48, and I've got all that I need except for $8.60. I'm just $8.60 short. Could you... Sir, could you please spare even a few dollars, just a few dollars to help us get in that room and be safe tonight? Anything you can give, I will appreciate it. I will forever be grateful. Why is it that we help some people and not others? Why is it that some people, the way they present themselves, their story, their demeanor, they almost invite us to do what we want to do, which is to help them to hand over a few dollars, but others make us tighten our fist and tighten our hearts. Why is that? What is it we want from someone we're giving money to? What are we buying with our money? What kind of response do we want How much humility and gratitude will it take from a beggar to warm our hearts? By the pool of Bethzatha, Jesus does something really strange. He comes up to a man who had been lying there for a long, long time, a man who had been ill for 38 years. That's almost as long as I've been alive. That's a lifetime of knowing nothing but what one cannot do. Perhaps because of the stuff that had accumulated around the man, Jesus looked at him and knew right away that he had been there a long time. And Jesus looked down at him and said, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? But all the man could say was, sir, I have no one to help me into the water when it is stirred up. And someone always seems to get there before I do. The legend of the pool was that an angel came down from heaven every now and then and with its wings stirred up the water and whoever made it into the water first would be healed. But that didn't do this man any good. He had to crawl his way there and by the time he got to the water's edge, someone had always gotten there first. If only someone would help him. 
If only someone would come along and offer to assist him like Jesus, who comes and says, do you wish to be healed? But all the man can see is his predicament. He's been incapacitated for so long that he no longer has the capacity to imagine a life any different than the one he has. Yet what does Jesus say to him? Stand up. Take up your mat and walk. Walk ahead into your future, a future that perhaps you couldn't even imagine 60 seconds ago. Sometimes people are stuck. Sometimes they're stuck in a place where they can't even want things to get any better. Sometimes they're stuck in the depths of depression so deep that they can't hope for something else. Sometimes people are mired in the bonds of addiction that even when salvation itself stands in front of them, they don't even know how to accept it. And what is our response? What is our engagement with those who have been held in that bond, that, that place of systemic challenge, suffering with poverty or mental illness, suffering at the hands of racism or other oppression. What's our response? What do we ask of them? Respect and gratitude, humility, maybe even an apology for letting their lives get so bad. What happens when it's our turn to be stuck? What happens when those of us who are so used to getting our life out of it, whatever we put in, for, for building a life that is the consequence of the decisions we make, what happens when we discover that there's nothing we can do to make a difference? What happens when that soul-sucking, life-draining experience called incapacity comes and finds us? What happens then? Jesus shows up and says, stand up, I'm with you. What does God say to us? What does God say to anyone, even in that place where they can't imagine things getting any better? God says, you're still my child. I still love you. God yearns for us to have faith in God, not because God needs it, not because God has some ego that needs to be satisfied by billions of people that wait on God's blessing. No, because God knows that when we have faith in God's love, we find peace. We find the peace that comes from knowing that we are not alone, even when we can't imagine things being any different. To those who are stuck, God comes among them and says, here I am, stand up, I'm with you. In the incarnation, God takes our nature upon God's self, not because we believe in God, but because God believes in us. The faithful one comes to give faith to the faithless. That's where salvation begins. That's where faith starts, not from within us, but from within God, a God who sees us and knows us and believes in us, even when we don't know how to believe in ourselves or believe in the one who has made us. That is our hope. That is our future. That is God's love 
for all of us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.